Welcome to Clocking In, Forces of NC Manufacturing. I'm your host, Phil Mintz, Director of the North Carolina Manufacturing Extension Partnership, otherwise known as NCMEP. My role is to drive outreach to NC manufacturers, build relationships to federal and state leaders, and coordinate efforts to drive profitable manufacturing growth in North Carolina. Throughout my time working closely with manufacturers, I have heard the most quirky, curious, and memorable stories. I wanted to turn these stories into a podcast so that others may hear and be informed and inspired. From humble beginnings to manufacturing titans, from tragedy to triumph, I will be interviewing some of these manufacturers who have made North Carolina manufacturing the powerhouse that it is today. In case you didn't know it, hosiery mills accounted for a substantial part of North Carolina's dominant textile industry in the 20th century. By the 1940s, over 60% of the state's textile and hosiery facilities were concentrated in Alamance, Guilford, Catawba, Randolph, Davidson, and Burke counties. Once nearly given up for dead, the hosiery manufacturing industry in the U.S. has been able to sustain and even thrive due to significant advancements in technology. North Carolina remains a key producer of hosiery products today. On this episode of Clocking In, we're speaking with a hosiery manufacturer headquartered in Randolph County, an area rich with textile and hosiery history. Established in Asheboro, North Carolina in 1989, Elastic Therapy Incorporated is a world leader in the design and manufacture of private label compression products. Their products are worn to aid in the treatment and prevention of vein-related disorders. ETI started with 25 associates working to manufacture medical compression products on 30 knitting machines. Today, ETI maintains 250 employees working with more than 200 knitting machines and producing millions of medical hosiery products annually. Today, we're clocking into a conversation with Chris Harrington, the Director of Operations and General Manager of Elastic Therapy. His previous positions include General Manager at Technicolor, Vice President of Operations at Sony Digital Audio Disc Corporation, and the Head of North America Operations at Draeger Safety. Chris has a Bachelor's in Organizational Management from Crichton College, a Master's of Business Administration from the University of Tennessee, and a doctorate in philosophy and leadership studies from North Carolina A&T State University. Chris, thanks for taking time to speak with us. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing great, Phil. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, kind of at first glance, it appears that your career journey is taking you through some interesting advancements there. I mean, those are as old as me can remember Technicolor is somewhat of a groundbreaking visual experience on film and television. And of course, you had the digital audio disc industry, but now you're in hosiery. Can you, uh, well, so can you explain that journey a little bit and how you got to where you are today? You know, the, the interesting thing about Technicolor and Sony I was in, it was a package media industry as it, you know, grew from uh, video cassettes through DVDs, ultimately to Blu-ray. And when I was in the industry, it was growing seven, 800% year over year. So the common theme there was growth and change, lots of change. I chose to leave that industry when it had peaked and was already starting the decline because of technology. The connection, if, if any, I guess, from, from that industry to textiles is that I didn't think textiles was going to go away, right? It, it seemed like it was a, a safer bet 
and then more specifically with uh, with elastic therapy, because while it's textiles for sure, it's uh, also medical devices, and there's a grander purpose behind the product, and because of that niche, harder to uh, to offshore. Talk a little bit about elastic therapy and kind of what your role is there and what the business does. So elastic therapy, um, we're, we're private level manufacturers, as you noted. Ultimately, what that means is you're not going to find an elastic therapy brand, right? So we're going to make for other people whose role in the, the, the value chain, if you will, is to, to market and distribute products. And our role is to design and manufacture. So we, we do that role. We do it well. And we service, uh, we service customers you know, all over the globe. The, the interesting thing about the, our, our products, uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's a medical device. It's the gold standard for preventing and, and treating venous disease and lymphatic disease. If you think about preventing DVTs or, you know, whether it's a travel related or even post-op in the hospitals. So the stockings that, that they put on post-op, you know, those are, those are the types of, of products that we, we manufacture. And, and, you know, Elastic Therapy, you know, it was, it was a family business that was acquired by DJO Global at the, uh, in, in 2011. And so really my role kind of from the, from the beginning was more of an integration role. And, and what ultimately I discovered that the greatest need was, was somewhat transforming the culture, right? Great team, lots of knowledge, but, you know, they, they kind of, they did what they always did, and and so it was really helping to 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 bridge the gap and and to you know more some current ways of doing things and and really helping the team you know kind of open open their minds to what could be and and really transforming it to more of a, a learning culture and and really developing the team. You know, you describe your products there as a medical device. Does that mean you? have to get certified by FDA and some of the other special things that, that come with the term medical? So our products are absolutely FDA registered. In the U.S., there is not a, a standard, if you will, for compression. Uh, so there's two, two medical classes of device. A class one medical device, essentially the, the indication is that it, it helps tired, achy legs, that, that type of thing. And a, a, a class two medical device the claims are that it treats and prevents blood pooling, the, the DVT. So it's, it's pretty interesting that globally, there's, there's three standards for uh, compression. The U.S. doesn't have one. So in the U.S., it's, it's really a matter of marketing claims. But uh, the other standards are there's a German standard, a French standard, and a, a British standard. We're the only U.S. manufacturer. There's There's... European manufacturers that have U.S. presence, but we are the only U.S. manufacturer that's certified to the three global standards. And in fact, we're the only U.S. manufacturer that's been accepted as a member of the German Quality Mark Association, which is the certifying body for the German standard. Wow. You know, I, I mentioned at the intro, you know, how the hosiery industry has benefited from technological advancements. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember back whenever you had to like sew a toe together for for a sock. And I guess with that, plus being in sort of a niche, that gives you an opportunity to be competitive here in the States. Is that kind of where we are 
with the hosiery uh, industry these days? There's the unfortunate reality is that the, the, because of the nature of our product, both because of the, the technical nature and, and just the, the composite, a regular hosiery typically would have two to 5% elastane or spandex in it. Our product typically has 20% or more. And the, the dynamic that that creates is it really eliminates the, the possibility uh, or greatly reduces the possibility of automation. It, it is still fairly labor intensive, but because of the, the nature of it, and, and also uh, one of the things that we've done, you know, we look at, you know, kind of the total value to the customer. It's a combination of, you know, order quantity, lead times, and, and the high quality. So when you couple those things together, we're very competitive, even with Asia. In fact, some of our global customers, you know, we service uh, customers in the UK. We actually have two different customers in Japan, and, and we do a lot of business with South Korea. It's uh, probably, people would not normally associate textiles exporting to Asia, but, but that in, in fact is the case. That's, that's pretty amazing there. Do you think that's accelerating or is just you're able to do that because of the nature of the work that you do? Uh, from a broader perspective, you know, what, what does the hosiery industry look like and how does it advance? I mean, is it something that we'll continue to be able to hold on to, you think? So, again, my uh, my knowledge is, is more limited, I would say, to the to the compression um, okay. segment of, of the hosiery. But, but what I would say is that they have made some pretty good strides in the last 10 years with knitting and sewing technology, kind of to your comment uh, about sewing the, the toes closed. There's uh, equipment out there, and, and we have some as well, for some types of product where you can close the toe as it's being knit. Of course, that takes out uh, a step and, and some cost. So I think that, that obviously helps the U.S. to become more competitive. I think more broadly, when I think about technology, especially in our segment, you know, from a product standpoint, just higher technology yarns. There's some work being done with infrared uh, yarns to, to try to help um, retain body heat. There's some work that's been done, but it wasn't commercially viable quite yet for uh, conductive yarns. There's work being done with flexible flexible electronics where possibly, you know, we'll be able to attach you know, some sort of a, a small patch type sensor and, and connect to, you know, maybe a smartphone. There's some yarns that, that have been developed here in North Carolina that are treated with medicine such as capsaicin so that, you know, it's a dual purpose type product. So there are those increases in technology. But then I think the other thing that we're act actively exploring is the internet of things from a manufacturing perspective, right? So we've got a lot of manufacturing equipment. We've got well over 200 knitting machines and, and a lot of different finishing equipment, but it doesn't connect to any meaningful database or, or visual management board. For us, that's, that's a big opportunity. And, and frankly, I see that opportunity not only in textiles, but in manufacturing in general. Right. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of a lot of manufacturers out there that, you know, maybe they've got you know 20 year old equipment that's far from its end of you know useful life, but it, it's not connected to anything. How, how do how do we 
how do we bridge that gap? How do we, you know, use the data that, that's generated by all of the equipment to improve our processes, improve our yield, and, and those types yeah. of things? Yeah, it's funny you should say that because that's one of the, the things that we're working on as the MEP program is to try to help figure out ways to bridge that gap, especially with a lot of our smaller manufacturing uh, industries. And we'll stay tuned for some of that. I'd be remiss without talking about that our current state of environmental uh, affairs today. You know, uh, we're here approaching the fall of 2021. And for the better part of a year and a half, we've been dealing with this little thing called the virus. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I'm curious, uh, again, it's always interesting to hear how organizations have been managing through the virus, because, you know, the, the most intriguing thing for me, and I guess to you also, it seems like throughout the pandemic, demand for goods and services has been just through the roof. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's really kind of an odd phenomenon. So how have you been uh, working through that? You know, we quickly navigated registering as essential business even before I, I think uh, virtually all manufacturers ultimately had that status but because we were a medical devices company you know we we never shut down we, we never shut down now from a people standpoint first um, we had to do a lot of different things to try to keep our our associates safe we've got a lot of plexiglass in the plant um, where we couldn't physically distance them you know, we, we quickly developed some, some masks, which was uh, a challenge because of our type of knitting equipment, but, but we were successful in that. We, uh, we actually produced masks, probably about 40 or 50,000 for all of our parent companies, uh, employees, uh, and, and shipped them around the world when, when, you know, they just weren't readily available. We did a lot to keep our uh, associates safe. And then, you know, frankly, in 2020, we did see a decline in, in our overall demand. And, and that's just related to uh, some of our customers. The sales channels that they serve were more brick and mortar. The, the customers that sold more through e-commerce did better than, than those that uh, sold through brick and mortar. This year, that demand has is, is rebounded uh, tremendously. In fact, I would say... Uh, our domestic volume is, is up, in fact, probably better than 2019. Now, our, our international business is, is not rebounded quite as well. But, but that kind of makes sense. If, if you think about where we are related to the rest of the world from a, a COVID standpoint, uh, as, as some have called it, uh, we're, we're vaccine privileged, meaning that we have the privilege of whether we take the vaccine or not where most countries uh, still don't have a vaccine available. So where we're, our, our customers are, are still in that situation, you know, uh, a lot of their business is still uh, hurting. Yeah, I guess that's a good, that's an interesting point. If you're selling globally, you know, you're, you're subject to the dynamics of wherever you sell, yeah, not absolutely. necessarily where you live. And so I guess that's something that we all should be thinking about, <laughs> really, in that regard. What, what's, what's in the future for ETI? I mean, is there new areas of, of growth that you're looking at? Or what are the things that, that change in your arena that allows you to do something different? You know, one, one thing I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about, I missed our internal supply. So internal supply for us, our, our main uh, supply, of course, is yarn. That has been a challenge. 
and it really goes back to the chemicals and, and the resins. Um, I would say like most other businesses, we have, we, we have painstakingly been, been dealing with uh, supply shortfalls, supply delays, and price increases. And, wow. and that's despite the, the fact that 99% of our yarns are, are sourced locally. But, you know, from, you know, so we're sourcing uh, mainly covered yarns. So that those are all coming from within, uh, generally within 100 miles of us. Wow. But, you know, a lot of their, their sources, you know, either the resins or, or the supply has moved offshore. Even uh, the Lycra company, they, they offshored most of their uh, production to, uh, to Ireland. That's been a challenge. Wow. So is it fair to say that uh, most of the supply chain problems can be traced back to imports from offshore? I mean, eventually. Yeah, I, I would say that that's the majority of it. But a lot of our uh, local partners, I, I would say it that way. Are, are experiencing uh, labor shortages as well. Oh, I uh, see. Yeah, most of the yarn covers, and you know, they're they're getting quite generous with uh, with how they're trying to recruit and, and things of that nature. But they they've had uh, certainly some some labor challenges. Back to your question on on where do I see us going? I believe the uh, bigger opportunities, honestly, for us, especially given the lack of uh, a U.S. standard. Uh, a lot of our opportunities are going to be international. And the fact that we've uh, achieved this uh, German standard and, and we made an investment in the test device that is used to certify uh, to the German standard, I, th I think that's a big opportunity for us. Uh, we're doing a lot of work with the uh, U.S. Uh, trade representatives and, and just really exploring, you know, how, how do we, you know, what are the right countries for us to, to, to go after where we don't have a presence and, and how do we how do we expand on that? I mean, if, if you think about it from a, the U.S. represents about four percent of the world population and much of the world population is, especially in, in, in more developed countries, is aging out like we are in the U.S., you know, that's a pretty good demographic for for our products. Yeah, great. Uh, before we go, I, I do I do want to acknowledge your your success and from the academic standpoint. We've been traveling some of the same circles there academically, and you recently were successful in your getting your PhD. And I want to congratulate you on that, Dr. Herring. And uh, again, I you know we're, there's always a lot to learn. And, you know, that there's that that program that I'm actually involved in to some degree at this point in time is it, it seems to be a very interesting program. Kind of, is, is there something that you feel like you you get from that uh, that you can apply to what you do now? You know, you, you, the leadership studies program at, at North Carolina A&T and and, you know, really when, when I thought about pursuing my, my doctorate, the aim was. You know, really to, to, you know, at some point pivot to academia and maybe do some teaching myself. But, you know, I, I got some really good advice. You know, the advice was that if you're going to pursue your PhD, make sure it's something that you're truly, truly passionate about. And, you know, over the years, when, when I, you know, found myself reading uh, something then other than just for, for, for the sheer pleasure, it was always about leadership, always trying to improve my leadership practice, learn more about leadership. Ultimately, that's why I chose the leadership studies program. 
you know, probably doing a, a doctor of business administration in some ways would have been easier, but I don't think it would have been as interesting. And for me, it was, it was twofold. One, you know, learn more about my practice and, and, and how to uh, hopefully practice better. But also, uh, you know, it's just an area of, of passion for me and, and really, uh, I'll say the art of influencing people and, and, and supporting people. Yeah, well, obviously, the way things are changing these days, there's, there's a lot of roles for, for leadership studies and understanding how that works, that's for sure. And, uh, yeah, so Chris, we really do appreciate you taking your, your time to join us today on this. And we always uh, learn a lot from our guests, and this is no different than what we always do. We wish you continued success with ETI and other endeavors that you may be involved in. And thanks for joining us on the program. Dr. Chris Harrington from Elastic Therapy. Thank you very much, Phil. I appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining today's Clocking In, Voices of NC Manufacturing. This podcast is brought to you by NC State's College of Engineering, the North Carolina Manufacturing Extension Partnership, and Industry Expansion Solutions. If you'd like to learn more about the solutions NCMEP offers, go to www.ncmep.org. Want to listen to previous Clocking In podcasts? Go to ncmep.org slash clocking in.